This is the cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just got 5 p.m. in the city of London. What are we going to be talking about on the programme this evening? Well, we're going to be talking about what is going on with AstraZeneca. We're going to hear from the head of AstraZeneca's biopharma units on those phase three trials out of the United States. Very good news for Astra. And the hope is uh, that they will put some of the safety concerns to bed. We're also going to be hearing from the Credit Suisse CEO, Thomas Gottstein, talking about the bank's plans to basically take its asset management unit uh, and separate it out, maybe uh, that happening in the wake of the Greensill capital collapse. Let's talk about the markets, though, first of all, because it's actually been an interesting day today. You wouldn't know that from actually what's been happening on the surface. Equity markets in many ways have gone kind of nowhere. The FTSE 100 up by just two-tenths of 1%. AstraZeneca higher. I'll talk about that in just a moment in a little bit more detail. The Kekarant's under a little bit of pressure. The DAX a little higher, driven by the uh, the automotive sector once again. Volkswagen having uh, another solid day. But the Spanish market in particular down very, very sharply today uh, on the back of what's happening in Turkey. The Turkish lira down very, very sharply. Uh, but the Astra story, I think, is really positive today. Um, cl- clinical trials out of the United States basically showing AstraZeneca's vaccine 79% effective in present- preventing COVID-19. The shots also basically, and this is the important bit, 100% effective uh, at preventing severe death and disease. Now, earlier on today, Kaylee Lines and I caught up with Bloomberg Intelligence senior pharmaceuticals analyst Sam Fazelli. We kicked off discussing the trial basically talking about whether or not the results can bolster confidence in the vaccine after so much confusion about its efficacy. Yeah, I would say that it definitely does. This is a large trial, over 32,000 subjects in it, only two arms to the trial, really clear cut data set here. So I'm looking forward to seeing the detail when it gets filed to the regulators and then, of course, published, etc. But for me, this really sets the record pretty much straight as regards efficacy. Okay, so what does it change? The US trial has come very late compared with other trials. This drug is already, this vaccine is already being administered in the UK and elsewhere around the world. Why is this important in terms of the reset? Well, so on Wednesday morning when I get to go and get my shot, when they offer me the AstraZeneca, and you've always heard me say, no, I'll have confidence in it. I'm going to be even more confident because I know that this is a sort of efficacy that you can get out of a four-week de- dosing interval. Probably even better if you do a 12-week dosing interval. We've seen the data from the other trials. We've seen the real-life evidence. And we've heard about the side effect issues. This really changes the dynamic for me in favor of the benefit versus the risk. But Sam, you're, of course, a little bit more informed on these issues than the general populace who has just watch the headlines as drama around blood clots and all of these questions around the vaccine uh, have been circulating over recent weeks. I mean, if there is still a certain level of hesitancy, how hard is the herd immunity equation going to be in Europe? Yeah, the, 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 the harder you have to work to get people convinced to get their vaccines, the tougher that, that, that goal will be to achieve. So there's really no rocket science about this here. This, is, this should be a 
much better public relations, public information uh, uh, system in place to do that. And I think, and I think as people start getting their vaccines and they don't get the anecdote affecting them, which is of course a lot more powerful than some data slide, um, then hopefully that builds some momentum. But we just need that energy and that effort to go into the system, which I think the UK has managed, Israel managed, and the US is managing. In terms of the US vaccine rollouts, I, we're almost at the point now where they've got enough to kind of let everybody just have as much as they want. Not that you need more than one, potentially, particularly with the J&J shot. But is this important for the US? Are they actually going to end up using the Astra shots that they have? I know that they've already started loaning them out to others, loaning them. Uh, do you think, actually, we will see a significant programme of, of Oxford, AstraZeneca uh, vaccines being, being administered there? Honestly, I don't see the, the, the need for it, right? Yep. Except, except you have two vaccines that require, still require, even though Pfizer BioNTech got easier, a serious freezing technology capabilities, right? So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the Astra vaccine do not. And that just makes them a lot easier to get them to any corner of any general yep. practice that you want to. So that does offer that ability. I believe that, that what they should do is approve it, make the doses available, and then see how it goes. If it's not needed, those doses will have a shelf life still that I can start giving it to, as they have done, yep. Mexico, Canada, etc. That was Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst Sam Fazelli. That positive news around Astra's efficacy is overshadowed in Europe. The EU is ready to start withholding COVID-19 shots from the UK, underlining worsening relations with London. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's reassured the EU doesn't want vaccine blockades. Earlier, we caught up with Bloomberg's Chad Thomas to discuss all of this. It's quite interesting because there are definitely still divisions here within the European Union itself as to the degree to which they want to move forward with this. We hear that the Netherlands will obviously follow the EU if they're told they have to do this, but they have basically said on the record that they would prefer to the, their supporter of free trade and they want to keep uh, the, the export, all exports open uh, to the UK and, and to other locations. Uh, very interestingly, just just within the last hour or so, we heard from the Irish Prime Minister, and he was basically backing the UK here as well, saying that he does not support any sort of export bans. Uh, we heard from Chancellor Merkel's uh, spokeswoman today, and, and that was a bit more nuanced, saying that, that the Chancellor understands the need to provide vaccine, first and foremost, to people uh, within the EU, but also not in favor of bans as such. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. The, the, one of the big pushers behind this has definitely been Italy. Obviously, they blocked uh, exports to Australia a, a couple of weeks ago of AstraZeneca. So where things actually play out uh, in the coming days will be, will be really interesting to see. And obviously, uh, we can be, uh, uh, you know, it's quite certain that Prime Minister uh, Johnson will be talking to his uh, fellow leaders in the EU trying to sway them as well. This is all on the vaccination side of the equation, Chad. On the contagion side of the equation, we know that Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany is pushing to extend the country's lockdown through April 18th. Is there going to be buy-in from the regional leaders for that? Is that pretty much a foregone conclusion that it will indeed be extended? It does seem like that there will be a, an extension here. The, the numbers in Germany, I, I'm sitting here in Berlin, the Germ numbers here in Germany have shot up significantly and sort of surpassed this 
uh, figure that they said they were there would be an automatic break in any sort of reopenings. And there seems to be a general sense that there will be an extension of the current lockdown we have in Germany. What the real discussion that's happening today is the degree to which they might roll back some of the things that they've already done in terms of reopening. So, for example, uh, hairdressers have reopened in Germany, and there's some discussion whether they would close those up again. But in general, this country is very much closed up, and it does seem like that will be the case after this meeting today. We're, we're expecting to hear from the Chancellor uh, later this evening here in Germany. Bloomberg's Chad Thomas. Coming up, more on AstraZeneca's vaccine with the head of the company's biopharmaceuticals units. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.10pm in the City of London. Let's get back to our coverage of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The drug maker shot faring better than expected in a US clinical trial, providing reassurance about its safety and efficacy. Earlier today, my colleagues on surveillance caught up with the executive VP of AstraZeneca's biopharma unit to discuss the trial results of the company's vaccine, European concerns about blood clots and the brewing battle of vaccine supplies in Europe. Yeah, as you, as you can imagine, uh, the data safety monitoring board uh, went literally with a magnifying glass through every case. And the very good news, and it was also in our press release, is that they didn't see any imbalance uh, regarding thrombolic, uh, thrombolic events in both the vaccinated group and, and the non-vaccinated group. So that's a, that's a great uh, a, a signal. And, and that builds on, on the very strong feedback we got last week from the MHRA in the UK and EMA uh, saying that the vaccine is highly effective and safe for, for use. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that as always for, for every product, for every vaccine, we will uh, clearly monitor every case we will get. Uh, but but it's fair to say that uh, based on the current data, the vaccine is uh, is highly effective and very safe. I think that there's been a difficult time recovering after in December there was that study uh, result out of the AstraZeneca vaccine that was somewhat confusing. There were two different groups. In one, it showed there was a 90% efficacy rate, and in another, it was 60-something uh, percent efficacy rate. How much do you think that's colored the view of people versus some other uh, policy error, perhaps? The speed in, in which we are developing vaccines is, is, is unprecedented. Uh, we're not cutting corners in any way or form, but we are learning, learning like we're doing for, for our other products uh, as well. I think the, the, the importance of today is that this trial uh, has been uh, done in a, in a phenomenal way, more than 30,000 participants in the United States. Uh, at Peru and, and Chile, uh, showing an unprecedented efficacy, uh, while the, the, the safety profile is, is extremely uh, strong. So I think hopefully uh, what happened in the, in, in the, in the past is, uh, is, is, is gone, that this will further boost the confidence in the, in the vaccine. We are very confident. Uh, many regulators are, are very confident that the vaccine has been approved in more than 70 countries in the world. And our next priority, of course, is also to get this vaccine approved 
via an emergency use authorization in the United States. And, and we're going to apply that uh, in, in, in the first half of April. And then, of course, it's in the hands of the FDA to make their final uh, decision. Rude, let's focus on reliable supply of this vaccine. And the issue around what is happening in Leiden right now, in your Netherlands, there is a plant there, as you know, that still has not been approved to supply Europe, yet the Europeans are fighting over the vaccines that are being produced there. We've heard from several EU officials over the weekend, many publications printing the same thing, that the Brits are insisting that the plant there in the Netherlands must deliver the drug substance produced there to them. That does not work. What is produced in that plant has to go to the EU. We've heard that repeatedly from several publications. What's your interpretation of where supply from that particular plant can go and needs to go? Yeah, so, so first of all, let's, let's put it in perspective. Uh, the, the European supply chain is highly dependent on very two large sites. One is, in, is based out of the United States and the other one is in, in, in Belgium. So this is a relatively small uh, site and, and so I, I, I don't want to do politics, that's not my job. My job is together with my other colleagues in order to provide uh, the, the vaccine to as many Europeans and as soon as possible. Uh, the, the site is, is, is playing a, a role, of course it will play a role for the European supply moving forward, but so far for, for all the viewers it's absolutely clear that we haven't used the sides neither in the UK uh, as well as in, uh, in, 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 in Europe. Both sides, both countries still need to approve this site. This site was originally meant to supply clinical trial material, so it hasn't been used yet for commercial supply. The EMA still needs to approve this, uh, this site. So I think there's a lot of confusion and there's no need for that. That was the executive VP of AstraZeneca's biopharma unit, Ruud Dober. Coming up, as Europe struggles with vaccine rollouts, European stocks edging higher. We're going to get the view from Goldman Sachs next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. You're listening to The Cable Live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.18pm in the City of London. Now, earlier today, Katie Lines and I spoke to Sharon Bell from Goldman Sachs. Now, we started off talking about the news out of Europe, which is getting worse and worse. Uh, and the ECB, for instance, has been having to step in and support the bond market. We saw evidence of that today in the data it delivered on its PEP programme. Lockdowns around Europe are intensifying. The vaccine rollout is not going very well. So how sustainable is this European equity outperformance that we've seen thus far? I think European equity markets, they, they're exposed somewhat to European domestic growth and, and the lack of vaccine rollouts definitely unhelpful from that perspective. Um, the renewed lockdowns in some places like France, for example, more discussion of it in Germany, as you talked about earlier. Um, but European companies are also 60% exposed in terms of their sales to other regions, to the US, to China, to Asia, to Latin America, to global growth. Um, so it's really global growth, uh, which I think is going to drive um, earnings for European companies. Uh, that global growth and also maybe for the banks as well, slightly rising bond yields and interest rates will be helpful too. So I, I definitely agree some of this domestic weakness we're likely to see in the next month or two, driven by the lower vaccine rollout, the, the resurgence of the virus will be a little bit unhelpful. Well, there's the vaccine rollout being slow part of the equation. There's also the rollout of fiscal stimulus in the Eurozone being slow. Are you worried about how long it is taking to get those funds from the EU Recovery Fund out into the European economy? 
Yeah, we always expected it would take a long time. Um, so I think the second quarter, which we're not quite in, was when we were expecting to start to see some of the money being rolled out. Um, and it will be particularly helping Italy and Spain. Of course, there's also domestic rollout. It's not just um, the recovery fund monies that were agreed mm. on last year. Um, most countries have their own domestic um, plans for supporting the economy. Uh, Germany, for example, has been running a short-time work scheme for a long time, so has France. Um, the UK has got its furlough scheme, for example. So it, uh, it's certainly the recovery fund monies, um, particularly helping Italy and Spain, are part of that, um, but they're not, they're not the entire thing. That said, I would agree with you entirely in terms of comparison with the US. Mm. In the case of the US, there's a huge amount of money being spent fiscally, and, and that's certainly not true in Europe. Sharon, last week we got news out of Volkswagen, huge German automaker, that it's going to make some massive, massive investments in terms of the, of the EV shift. How important do you think that kind of corporate action is going to be in repositioning Europe? US investors in particular suddenly seem to have woken up to the potential of the German auto sector, maybe not to overtake Tesla, but at least to compete with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a good example. There are several sectors in Europe which were written off, really. People assumed that they would I mean, never, not only never grow again, but sink forevermore. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the retail sector would be a good example. But that's transforming. I mean, many of the old-style retailers are either unlisted now or, alternatively, they transform their business to being aggregators, platform businesses, online businesses, for example. As you say, the auto sector as well in Europe um, taking on board EV, the European government supporting that as well. Um, I think the you've seen changes in the banking sector in Europe too. Um, I, this last year, we, we haven't seen a crisis for the banks, whereas in the previous years, I mean, we would have done with such a recession as we've had now, they've had much better capital bases. They've also been cutting their costs. So mm. actually their cash flows, their earnings have been much, much better this time. Right. I mean, there are different stories in each sector. Um, the utility sector is another classic example. Um, investing in renewables and renewable energy. So these sectors that were, were dead or dying have become investable. What about the travel sector, Sharon? In addition to autos outperforming, it has been travel and leisure stocks outperforming in Europe, even though you have Germany looking to extend the lockdown, even though who knows when international travel is going to come back again. I mean, has that trade gotten too far ahead of itself in your view? Look, I think it's, it's a funny mix of the sector, the travel and leisure sector in Europe, um, it's small, for one thing. It's, it's a tiny sector. Uh, but you're right, it's been one of the leading sectors. It's also a sector which is quite dominated by UK names. And, of course, those UK names um, are benefiting from a pretty fast vaccine rollout um, and a reopening that's likely in the UK economy from April. So um, I think that sort of bias towards the UK names perhaps is helping. Um, and also sort of international travel and leisure coming back as well. Um, that all said... I do kind of agree that there will be some losers from um, sort of a, a re-lockdown in continental Europe and, and, and travel and leisure is certainly a sensitive area to that. Um, if you take southern Europe and France, a large chunk of their economies um, is exposed to hospitality, travel, leisure. Um, something like 6% of, of Italian GDP and something like 17% of employees um, in Italy are exposed to, to hospitality industry, travel and leisure. So it, it's significant. It's going to have a multiplier effect. And if you don't have that sort of reopening through the summer, it's going to be a negative and, and for some of those stocks in that sector. But I would warn that it's a small sector. It's also very UK yep. exposed. 
We're going to be talking to Mark Manduka from City about that in just a few minutes' time. So stay tuned uh, <laughs> if you're interested in that sector. Sharon, final question on China. Uh, and it's kind of a multi-pronged question. China is, is not going to provide the same level of fiscal and monetary impulse this year as it did last year. Europe, Germany, the auto sector, we've talked about that already, but engineering more broadly, heavily exposed to China. If we don't see that, that boost this year, how big an impact will that have? And do you think the growth we're going to see stateside will compensate? Look, China, yeah, absolutely, in terms of the inflection point in China and the growth and the support that you have from the Chinese authorities, most of that came in 2020. That said, um, growth in China is still likely to be pretty strong in 2021. I know they're kind of targeting a minimum level of, of 6%, but we think we have a forecast of over 8%, 8.5% growth for China in 2021. That's still a pretty good pace. And if you're a European company, as we've just said, exposed to pretty weak growth, in Europe, that, that's, still, that, that's still a pretty good market to be investing in and exposed to. So um, I still think actually that's part of the recipe of a strong global yep. growth backdrop, which is helping Europe. That was Sharon Bell, Goldman Sachs, global investment research equity strategist, talking to Kayleigh Lines and myself a little earlier today. Coming up, Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein on possible spin-offs of the bank's asset management unit. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.30pm in the City of London. Credit Suisse Group CEO Thomas Gottstein signalled he'll consider further separating the assets management unit from the rest of the bank after the Greensill capital collapse. As the Swiss bank tries to minimise the fallout from the crisis, he spoke exclusively with Bloomberg's Rich Salamat ahead of the lender's annual Asia Investment Conference. We already had a strategic review of the asset management business. I was never a big fan of the fact that asset management was part of IWM. And uh, this Greensill situation has now accelerated uh, what I was planning anyway to take it out of IWM. So uh, Uli Kerner uh, will now put his team together uh, and uh, will take asset management to the next level. Well, does the responsibility at senior level stop with the Herr Varvel uh, or are you considering further actions? Well, this will be uh, now uh, subject to the review that I uh, uh, said that uh, the, the board is doing. Uh, right now, we are focused on finding the best solution for our fund investors. That's our priority. Our priority uh, as a management team is to get the best solution for them. Uh, and in parallel, there will be an investigation. Uh, and I'm not going to speculate on the outcome of that. One more question. If you, you, know, you spit off uh, asset management, do you foresee it actually being spun off into a completely separate entity? Uh, which could be independent? Uh, that's uh, uh, potentially part of uh, the plan, but the most important one is now it's its own division. It's in different legal entities. Um, having uh, a holding uh, company uh, uh, around that could be something we are uh, pursuing. 
And uh, risk control, final question, sorry, is uh, one of your top priorities right now in view of what's been happening? Well, risk control has always been a top priority. It's, uh, it's uh, key to every bank. So uh, I'm uh, absolutely focused on that. Uh, uh, not only now, I was and I will be. Well, in, in some languages, uh, there's no such word as crisis. There's only the word opportunity. Does this present an opportunity and does it present an opportunity for your incoming chairman here as well, uh, who, of course, will be joining very soon, Mr. Antonio Horta Osoria? And do you expect a review from him of the business and a change in strategy with, of course, uh, in tandem discussions with you? You're absolutely right. Uh, every crisis uh, represents also an opportunity. That's exactly how I look at this. And absolutely. Uh, when Antonio will join, uh, this will be certainly one of the uh, key topics we will talk about um, uh, when, when uh, he's elected on the 30th of April and when he starts uh, in early May. Okay, you know, so the thing is also perhaps there was something being touted last year that uh, you could be involved with a merger with UBS and I think the UBS chief executive has said that there's no such uh, action likely to happen in the near term. Can you envisage it? I think the um, topic of UBS is not a topic at all, but uh, the um, overall theme of consolidation continues to be a very relevant theme for all banks in Europe. It's a market that is challenged by negative interest rates, uh, the need to invest in digitalization, in risk and compliance, and uh, is a market that is in most countries still overbanked. So consolidation will continue and Credit Suisse would like to be part of that consolidation. There are various opportunities in various areas for us, uh, in particular in private banking, which we're looking at uh, and uh, that will continue to be uh, part of our growth strategy, which is predominantly an organic growth strategy, but uh, we are opportunistic to look at inorganic uh, 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 opportunities as well. Uh, absolutely, and uh, cross-border? Cross-border can be part of that, but um, uh, cross-border always comes with more complexity, but uh, it's certainly not at the moment our uh, you know, main focus. Thomas, I want to just concentrate a little bit on Europe. Uh, tell us how the business is there and where you're seeing shoots of recovery and where do you want to be concentrating on the continent? So from a macro perspective, um, as I said, we, we expect the recovery in the second half. Uh, and we see also in terms of um, pickup in uh, M&A, capital markets, more uh, CEO confidence uh, coming through, even though uh, there is still frustration in some countries, including Switzerland, about the speed of the vaccine programs. But uh, there is an increase in terms of confidence uh, that we can uh, see and hear from our clients. And that uh, itself creates an opportunity both for our private banking business, but also for our investment banking business. Tell me about Brexit and how this is impacting you. So we did move some people out of, out of London. But on the other hand, uh, London continues to be uh, our main hub in terms of investment banking for the whole uh, Europe region, including the UK, of course, and uh, even Switzerland. We do a lot of services in terms of investment banking out of London. 
Uh, in terms of private banking, we have uh, our main hub for the Eurozone is in Luxembourg, um, but we also have booking um, capabilities in, in Spain and other, other countries and of course in, in London. So we have to see now how things will develop. Uh, there is very close collaboration between Switzerland and the UK because Switzerland obviously is also not part of the EU and uh, it was very helpful. How important is it for the EU and the UK to come up with an agreement about equivalence? Well, I think it's important and it's, uh, it's in the interest of both sides because uh, uh, the, the, the London market will continue to be, for investment banking at least, the key market in Europe. I'm convinced about that and they will keep that, uh, that, uh, uh, that status. And uh, some of uh, the consequences of Brexit is also that they can be maybe slightly more liberal in terms of uh, some of their regulations. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be helpful for, for the industry. So um, I'm convinced that it's in both uh, parties' interests to uh, find the appropriate agreements and mutual recognitions, and uh, then we should all move on from there. Your investment bank uh, in the first two months saw revenues up by about 50%, and that's a hell of a clip, but can you keep that up? It's actually more than 50%, we said, it's over 50%, and it's really doing very well. Yeah, I'm extremely satisfied about our operational performance in the first quarter. It's proved that our strategy works. Clearly, uh, green sale, uh, is a distraction and is something that uh, we're working through now. But uh, the, uh, you know, the operational results we had in the first two months shows that we're on the right path. Any idea of uh, a target for year's end uh, with regard to revenues and uh, profits? No, that's uh, too premature to give any guidance on that. Uh, because there are too many question marks out there around the speed of uh, the overall economic recovery and uh, the vaccine rollout and the macroeconomic uh, situation. Uh, but, um, you know, we said that midterm, we want to get to 10 to 12% in terms of return on tangible equity. And midterm, that means from 2022 onwards for us. And that's what we're focused on. And that's what we want to deliver. That was Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein. Coming up, a conversation with Shamelia Khan of Alliance Birdstein about Turkey. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.40 in the city. Now, the Turkish lira has seen better days. The currency plunging after the Turkish central bank governor was sacked by President Erdogan over the weekend. Can the central bank get its credibility back? Earlier, Kayleigh Lines and I spoke to Shamelia Khan, Alliance Bernstein Emerging Market Debt Director. It's going to be very hard to get credibility back. I think the best they can do is try to stabilize the situation. Valuations are unlikely to go back to where they were under Agbal. Um, so stability in the situation is probably the most optimistic scenario. Um, credibility, unfortunately, has been lost for the, um, uh, I would say, medium term uh, for this administration after what they did over the weekend, which I would classify as one of their biggest policy missteps. 
Shmalia, there had been a sense that President Erdogan was giving up his views on monetary policy and becoming a little bit more orthodox. Was that just a mirage? Was that just something that the investment community was hoping they were seeing but didn't have evidence for? How would you characterise his current views? What do we learn from this weekend? Are we back to his belief that higher interest rates mean higher inflation? Well, that's a great point. And President has shown the ability to U-turn on policies in the past and maintain orthodox policies for some period of time. What we have learned from this is that his time span on these have def has definitely shortened. And that's the big lesson from this weekend, that there is unfortunately a difficult situation in Turkey right now where politicians want growth. They want to reduce uh, unemployment. However, the only path of doing so is to maintain orthodox policies for a prolonged period of time. And there's unfortunately no bandwidth in terms of patience when um, they are doing that anymore. Well, Shamayla, obviously the concern with the incredible weakness we're seeing in the Turkish layer today is inflation. How strong are the inflationary pressures outside of the FX effects in Turkey right now? Well, we were really expecting, uh, given the hikes that we've seen from the previous central bank governor, that eventually inflation will start going down. And it would have if they had maintained policies um, and their credibility. Unfortunately, the uh, exchange rate depreciation will now feed into inflation, plus the concerns on the credibility of the central bank. What's the next move from the Turkish central bank, do you think? I think what they will try to do is, as I mentioned, the best case scenario to try and maintain stability, in which case they're going to promise policy continuity. They're going to try and stabilize the market through interventions. However, this is not a sustainable strategy, and that was the concern of the market last November. And the changes that took place gave investors some confidence that the political circles were understanding that, uh, which unfortunately was dashed this weekend. Shamila, do you expect this to have any bleed through into other kind of higher yield EM assets? No, I would not. I think there are a number of factors that are going for many emerging market high yield countries. Uh, the contagion from Turkey is not going to impair that. In fact, Turkey, to a greater extent, is linked to Europe than it is to many of the major emerging market issuers. Can we read into it, into this anything else in terms of the president's approach? This is a, a huge decision which is going to have massive, massive effects on the Turkish economy. Is this a rethink? Is this going to affect policy in other areas? Is he rethinking policy, foreign policy? Is he rethinking his policy towards Europe? Can I read into this? In terms, of, in terms of a bigger shift in Ankara's kind of view of the world and its policy towards it? I think the big shift is that they are still not convinced that these policies are what they need to reduce unemployment in the country. Um, there are obviously a lot of political factors in play and they may also influence foreign policy as they realize that what they have done is actually counterproductive to what they want to achieve. So, yes, this could well have several policy implications going forward, um, and none of them, in our opinion, are likely to be positive. That was Shamalia Khan, Alliance Bernstein Emerging Market Debt Director. Coming up, Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.48pm in the City of London. Earlier, Kayleigh Lines and I caught up with Lizanne Saunders from Charles Schwab, where she is the Chief Investment Strategist. We started talking about the vaccine rollout and how it's been ramping up in the US and the UK compared with the EU, where it continues to lag behind. And how is she thinking about how, as a result, she should allocate regionally, given the divergence that we've seen in the way that the programme is going? Well, it's it's not only because of um, vaccine. In fact, I would suggest it's maybe a small part of it. We uh, went to an overweight non-U.S. or international stocks, as, as we call it here, obviously, at the beginning of this year. And the offset to that, from a tactical perspective, was a downgrade of U.S. large caps. Um, so we now favor small caps in the U.S. a bit more than large caps, but broadly in terms of glo- global equities, we have a bias toward developed international equities. And the, the primary reason, in addition to things like vaccine and more reasonable valuations, is that we believe that when you exit one full cycle, meaning a cycle inclusive of a bear market and a recession, you tend to see a shift in leadership patterns. And you you, you tend to go in eight to 10 year periods where you flip-flop leadership US to non-US in terms of uh, equities. And we think we're at the beginning of another trend that at least means diversification outside just US large caps is going to pay some dividends. Figuratively, I should say. <laughs> when you made that call, Lizanne, it's Guy in London. You, Europe looked like it was it was tracking pretty positively. Uh, had control of the virus to a certain extent. We didn't have any of the issues relating to the vaccine rollout. Europe is now a mess and potentially could get uh, even more difficult over the next few weeks and months as we enter this critical summer period for the periphery of Europe. Do you worry that most of the gains that have already been priced in, and I appreciate that Europe is a high beta on global growth, but there is also a domestic component, most of those gains, that outperformance has already been priced in? Um, Not necessarily. If we thought that, then we would have changed the view. I think, if anything, the very, very robust assumptions being made about the U.S. economy is probably priced into uh, U.S. stocks. I think in the case of uh, Europe, you have that potential because of the weakness now of a pickup in growth that maybe exceeds more dampened recent expectations because some of the uh, vaccine-related turmoil. But when you take into consideration the combination of the valuation differential, the cycle views that we have, just how long we've seen the dominance of U.S. large-cap performance, we still think, and again, it's just it's developed international um, equities where we're overweighting. We don't go at the country level in our tactical views. So it's a, a broader swath of, of countries on an index level than just uh, Europe. The ECB obviously has taken a different tack to policy in recent weeks, really, when we've seen the rise in bond yields. The ECB has acted on that. The Fed says it's not worried. It's also not worried about inflation. It's going to look through it. It's going to be transient. The market doesn't seem to be buying that messaging from the Fed, do you? Well, I'm not sure if if a 10-year yield in the U.S. at 1.7 is a market not buying uh, what the Fed is doing. I think that reflects the... Um, growth pickup that we are going to see, and in turn, a bit of a pickup in inflation. And whether you use the word transitory or 
um, near-term price shocks. Uh, I think that that's valid at this stage of the game. I think we are seeing and will continue to see supply-demand imbalance-related price shocks. We're going to have the easy comps or the base effect of a lot of the traditional inflation metrics in year-over-year terms are going to, to start to look a little bit hotter in conjunction with the hotter GDP and other economic metrics that are now going to be comped against, obviously, the shutdown phase a year ago. But we think that the ongoing slack in the labor market is probably the key factor that prevents an outbreak of the kind of systemic wage price spiral inflation that we think of when we go back to the mid-70s to early 80s. So at this yep. stage in the game, I'm not sure the Fed is and the bond market are sending mixed messages. So the Fed's not going to break the markets. Um, I, I'm wondering whether a fiscal slowdown might. Lizanne, the market started pricing in a recovery, particularly in the United States, about nine months ago. We are now going to have an incredibly positive economic picture in 2021, but then the, the fiscal impulse is going to fade. We'll see what happens with monetary. Um, when does the market start pricing in that slowdown? Um, that's a good question. I think we may have to start pricing in a bit more of a slowdown on the good side of the economy uh, because we we really, when you we think about the pent-up demand story, which is the narrative tied to what is going to happen when things fully open up and effectively we're all vaccinated, whatever percentage that represents. But I think there may be more of a pent-down demand story on the good side, given how strong consumption has been on the good side, whether it's housing, everything housing-related, home improvement, electronics, automobiles, and I'm not sure that's built into expectations. I also think that the nature of pent-up demand in services, which is unquestionable, in toll where we've seen the biggest hits on the services side of the economy only accounts for about 5% of GDP growth. So where we've seen that strong demand that's already been met represents a much larger share of the economy. So we're mm. unquestionably going to get the pop. But absent that fiscal stimulus, and once we meet some of that pent-up demand, I worry that there's going to be too much extrapolating of this short-term story we're about to see in in demand uh, too far into the future, and that could bring in maybe a bit more of a, a volatile phase for uh, for the overall stock market. What about the dollar, Lizanne? Data out of the CFTC shows hedge funds are actually net long the dollar now for the first time since November. I think the strength of the dollar this year has taken a lot of people by surprise. Do you expect that to continue? And how does that affect your investment thesis at this point? Well, if, if the recovery does have legs beyond just the base effect, as, as we talked about, of year-over-year of -year comparisons, and in particular, if yields continue to move up and the Fed has to start to signal either tapering in terms of the balance sheet or maybe an earlier expectation for rate hikes, then, yeah, I think that that would be fairly dollar, dollar supportive. I think the initial move in the dollar, and you touched on it with regard to hedge funds having now moved to a net long position, um, you know, sentiment can impact more than just the equity market. We talk about investor sentiment conditions to such a great degree in the equity market, but they really can come into play in other markets, including currencies. That does it for this edition of The Cable. I hope you have a good rest of your evening. I'm Guy Johnson. This is Bloomberg.